Here's Your Red Flag is intended for mature audiences only. Many, if not most, of our episodes will include topics such as psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, and detailed narcissistic and toxic behaviors. We are not professional therapists. If you are in need of professional help, please contact the appropriate authorities. Some names have been changed for anonymity purposes. The opinions expressed by the guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lisa or myself. You can find additional information about this podcast in the show notes, as well as on our website, heresyourredflag.com. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I flew up to the mirror Well, there was nothing that I seen You lie, I cried The butterfly walked in my eyes You lie, I cried The butterfly walked in my eyes Trigger warning we will be discussing a few instances of domestic violence. Please listen with care. Thank you. The National Domestic Violence Hotline states that domestic violence, also referred to as intimate partner violence, dating abuse, or relationship abuse, is a pattern of behaviors used by one partner to maintain power and control over another partner in an intimate relationship. Domestic violence doesn't discriminate. People of any race, age, gender, sexuality, religion, education level, or economic status can be a victim or perpetrator of domestic violence. That includes behaviors that physically harm, intimidate, manipulate, or control a partner, or otherwise force them to behave in ways they don't want to, including through physical violence, threats, emotional abuse, or financial control. Multiple forms of abuse are usually present at the same time in abusive situations, and it's essential to understand how these behaviors interact so you know what to look for. When we know what relationship looks like and means, we can take steps to get help for ourselves as well as better support others who are experiencing abuse. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic abuse, please visit the National Domestic Violence website at thehotline.org or see our show notes for the link. Thank you. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Tony. We are amazingly starting episode four. And I was wondering, what do you think about me providing my recollection of our friendship over the years and especially the seven years when you were married to number two? It would provide some context of someone who knows you well on the outside looking in. And it might be interesting to give my perspective on what I witnessed after your meeting and falling in love with this guy to give like a brief snapshot of what it looked like on the other side, outside of this cult of two that y'all had. What do you think about that? That's a great idea. Well, good. I just so happen to have some notes written down <laughs> that I will read from and then after that, we will process it a little bit, and then it will be wonderful for you to talk about what it was like, your scales falling from your eyes. Sounds like a great plan. So here we go. Okay. We have been friends, as we've mentioned, for over 20 years and met each other through the church we attended back in 2000. Our kids are close in age, and throughout all the years, we attended most of the children activities as well as many of the adult activities together, like ladies class and bunko and a weekly Bible study. 
you and your first husband came a lot of times to the couple's dinners and activities, and we had dinners at each other's homes. I would have to say that you and I grew closer when our daughters were in piano class together for a couple years. That afforded you and I hours and hours of uninterrupted time to talk and really get to know each other. The best way I can describe our friendship is that I think we connected at the heart. You have an innate sense of people, and you were the most kind, loving, and empathetic person. I think when our paths crossed in 2000, we were both searching for an authentic friendship, and I truly believe that God brought us together. We have just always gotten each other in every way, including our similar senses of humor, our inquiring minds, really on every level. You and I can talk pretty much about any subject, and we always learn and laugh together. We actually just really have so much fun together. We bonded and grew super close throughout the years and often teamed up together to teach ladies class lessons, and we always chose each other as roommates year after year after year at the ladies' retreats. I was a part of your support system when you went through your divorce with husband number one. We stayed connected even when you went back to work at that Christian organization and then back to teaching and public education. I remember when you first told me about number two, you gushed about how handsome he was and what a great father he was and mentioned the terrible marriage he had had. You seemed very happy, like you had finally found someone who really got you and who had the same values. I remember you giving me lots of details about his ex-wife and the troubles in their marriage. He painted the picture of what a neglected and abused spouse he had been. He really painted a horrible picture of his first wife. I was very hopeful for you as it seemed like you really loved this man and felt he was going to be such a great addition to your life. It was striking to me that he had custody every single weekend of his three daughters. Every weekend they were with y'all and a teeny red flag was, when do y'all spend time alone together? Because the weekend was when he had free time to hang out and court you and it just seemed y'all did not ever have quality alone time the kind of time that I think couples need to get to know each other I remember I think I even asked you when do y'all hang out together when do y'all get to spend quality time together I believe you said something like when the kids all go to bed Another very big red flag was how quickly your relationship progressed. Y'all went from zero to marriage very quickly, and I had not even met him yet. Y'all decided to have the smallest wedding I'd ever heard of, just you and number two and your children. Your parents weren't even invited. And I certainly wasn't invited, which I thought was kind of strange, but I supported it, even though it was a head-scratcher to me. I can understand people eloping or wanting to keep weddings small for various reasons like costs, etc. But I did think it was strange that y'all didn't at least have a dinner afterwards to celebrate your union and include those who are important in your lives. It seemed to me very isolating and elitist and excluding and not Lisa. It's just not how you, Lisa, conducted your life. And it felt strange and odd 
and it gave me a feeling of trepidation that this man has still not met any of your friends, let alone your dearest friend, me. I know I was a bit relentless in trying to invite y'all to all of the social functions or even just coming to have dinner at our house or meeting us at a restaurant so we could actually meet this man. No matter how many times I invited y'all to come do things, y'all could and would never come. Not once. Not once. That was a huge red flag to me. This is just not the Lisa that I know and have known for way more years than he has known you. When you started dating him, I definitely started to feel you pulling away. And that was yet again another huge red flag to me as we had years of a solid friendship. All the times that I would invite y'all to do stuff with us, your excuses seemed like a cry for help. But I didn't want to seem meddling and I didn't want to drive you away. So I stayed persistent, yet I tried hard to meet you where you were at at the time. I had three and only three interactions with number two over the seven years y'all were together. The first was the year that I took y'all's Christmas picture for your Christmas card. Y'all came over all dressed up, his three daughters, and you and your two kids, and you and him. It was quick and efficient, and y'all were out the door. There was no small talk. There was no getting to know me on his part. His daughters were sweet and darling, and your kids were wonderful as always, but it was the quickest somebody has driven all the way out to where I live and could barely stay and have a civil conversation. This man, it was apparent, did not want to know me. And I am not just some random person in your life. The second occasion I had to be around number two was my father's funeral in 2014. Y'all drove four hours to attend the funeral, and I barely gave you a hug and shook his hand before y'all were back in the car and driving four hours back home. Everybody else went over to my mother's house after the funeral service to have food and celebrate my dad. And this man... Number two, could not even let you go be with your best friend during this very sad time for me. You understood how close I was with my father and what an important relationship that was to me. And I honestly was pissed off at him for not allowing you to come be with us for one more hour. I was hurt by that. And I know you know that. But I knew that was not your decision to leave and not stay and be a support for me and my family. I know you would have been there otherwise. At this point, it was obvious he had a tight grip on you. At the time, both my sister and my husband remarked, why is your best friend leaving so early? So even they could see there was something wrong here. The last interaction I had with number two was when he referred me to someone who needed a photographer for their business. That gig did not work out, but number two called me and stayed on the phone with me for probably an hour and it was one of the most uncomfortable phone call conversations I've ever had. During this phone call, he was so persistent in telling me that I needed to become a professional photographer. And I let him know in no uncertain terms that I did not want to do this as a profession. I like photography as a hobby, but man, he was like a dog with a bone and he would not let it go. It was a very awkward, odd and uncomfortable phone call. I barely knew this guy, and yet he knew what was best for me. He would not hear my protestations and continuously stated what a mistake I was making for not becoming a professional photographer. It raised many flags for me and made me all the more concerned about you, because I can only imagine if he's like this with me, someone he doesn't even know, what is he like with the people that he's actually close to? 
I couldn't wait to get off the phone with him. I couldn't wait to tell my husband what a strange conversation I just had with someone who doesn't even know me, who so doggedly was trying to tell me what my career path needed to be all of a sudden. It was very strange, and I will never forget it. Another concerning instance I clearly remember was when I turned 50, my husband planned a surprise 50th birthday dinner for me, inviting two couples, you and number two, and another dear friend of ours and her husband to a lovely restaurant in town. When we arrived at the restaurant and were taken back to the table where y'all were sitting and yelled surprise, I saw our friend and her husband and you, solo, no number two. Everyone asked you, where's number two? We want to meet him. And I can't even remember what excuse you gave. Something like either had a headache or had to work early the next morning. Something lame. All of us had things to do the next morning. And headache or not, you go with your wife to celebrate a free dinner for her 50th birthday. I believe that a loving, supportive spouse will come with you to something like that. Your best friend's 50th surprise dinner party. But he couldn't take an Advil and be there with you was really inexcusable to me. And I felt sadness and pity for you, which is not something you want to feel for your best friend, who up until meeting this person was pretty dang awesome. And it was becoming quite apparent that you were not the full, whole Lisa that I had known all the years prior. You were fine at dinner, you laughed and had conversations normally with us, but it was strange and odd that he wasn't there when he so easily could have been, because he was in town. I know no marriage is perfect, mine certainly isn't, however, I did fortunately, amazingly, somehow marry a man who has empathy and respects me and my interests, and although we are very different from each other in many ways... We are both game for participating in functions that are important to each other. It's respect and compromise and a part of a healthy marriage, in my opinion. Number two, missed years and years of these occasions that were and are important to you. And I truly believe that is another big red flag. It made no sense except for the fact that it absolutely fit the pattern that this man had set in your life, but did not fit with the way you had lived your life prior to him. You've mentioned that... Your big values are faith, family, and hard work, but I think another thing you truly value is your friendships. You are very discerning and selective with who you choose to be your close friends, and you foster and nurture your relationship with each and every friend that you have, and we all feel valued and cherished by you. It was completely apparent that he tried so hard to isolate you and keep you from nurturing your friendships, but... Fortunately, your close friends could see something changing in you during this marriage. And because we love you so much, we didn't let you go. I think that was one of the saving graces for you getting out of this marriage. I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but it's really telling that throughout your seven-year marriage to him, he never attempted to come to anything. Anything. He knew that you and I were best friends, and he knew that I was important to you. And by not coming to anything ever... I think he was showing you that if you wanted to keep it peaceful with him, you had to submit to not living your life as you had previously. I mean, he brainwashed you. You were brainwashed. He also drove a wedge between you and your parents. 
Granted, that was already a strained relationship, but he definitely put the nail in the coffin on your relationship with them. I could be wrong on that, but they did not approve of him. They saw red flags too. And you have stated that there was not much interaction early on and forever after between y'all with your parents, especially the time period leading up to when you got married. During your marriage to him, I could often feel you pulling away, but I didn't let you go and I wasn't going to let you go. I would have to say that I tenaciously kept in contact with you, probably bordering on annoying. I'll never forget that day that you called me and began to tell me what you were going through in your marriage. It's like the floodgates opened that day and you let loose a torrent of stories and information about his mistreatment of you. It was heartbreaking to hear everything. And I truly went into operation save my friend mode. And I think that's what you're going to talk about over these next two episodes. Basically how the scales fell from your eyes and you started your exit plan from that destructive marriage. So I'm curious seven years, what did you notice about our friendship during that time and the effect that this unhealthy marriage had, not just on our friendship, but on your other relationships with other friends, coworkers, et cetera, and maybe even your view of yourself looking back. Do you feel like you were numb and maybe you just didn't notice it? Because I think that could be a possibility. No. I wish I could say that, Mm. but I knew it and I, I dreaded any possibility of an invite to anything as couples because I knew I would have to make an excuse as to why we both couldn't go. Yeah, he did say that he just was not into parties or doing things as a couple and he would say that because his job kept him away from home throughout the week which he chose that job by the way Uh, since his job kept him away from home and he was only home on the weekends he didn't want to share our time with anyone else Mm -hmm. and at first I thought that was so romantic and it was going to be just us but it was never just us because between the two of us we had five children So we were always, I was always, I was mom Monday through Friday, and then I was bonus mom plus mom Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We were never alone, Mm -hmm. he and I. And so then I began to also believe that why, why leave, if he's never home, why would we leave home? to go socialize with other people if we could potentially use that time for ourselves. Like maybe, you know, his kids wouldn't come over that weekend or my kids would be with their dad. So I would always rationalize his isolation tactics Mm -hmm. always. And I then became to believe them myself. Things like not not talking to people outside of our relationship about our relationship. And he made that very, made it very clear to me that that was an issue of trust for him, that if, that I was wrong to talk to anyone else about us, if I couldn't talk to him about those same things. Wow. So I was wrong to process any doubts or 
questions or even like venting type things like I think are probably normal in relationships you get on each other's nerves and maybe just want to process that with someone but not necessarily go to your spouse at, right away with that mm-hmm. you know but yes that was very that that was a big no-no and now I see why because once I started talking to you about it the floodgates did open and mm-hmm. For years, I think that's all I talked about with you after it started. So, and you're welcome to talk to me forever after. You're so sweet. (laughs) We have to process, you know, I process very old stuff with you over and over and over again. So, and I don't get tired of that either. Yeah. Which is why we're such great friends. Yeah. And I appreciate you so much. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, my next question is, what caused the scales to start falling off your eyes? What led you to finally call me and for lack of a better word, confess to me what was happening in your marriage when you had kept it such a secret all that time? So now I'm going to turn it all over to you. As another wonderful podcast host says, the floor is now yours. Okay. So all throughout our marriage, I did see red flags and I felt those red flags in my gut, but I was, became really good at rationalizing the isolation tactics, the manipulation, the emotional abuse. And I would rationalize it with things like he had a, according to him, abusive mother and a father who didn't come to his aid. And again, that's according to him. So I would rationalize the abuse, the manipulation, the control, his need for power. I would explain that away with his childhood. And I would also explain it away using um, spiritual abuse, scriptural abuse, specifically the verse, you know, wives submit to your husbands. And I was conditioned for that very early on because my mother was so submissive toward my stepfather who was abusive to her, as you'll remember from episode one. So she was submissive, but not in the biblical sense. She laid down and took that abuse. And that was my vision of submission, which is not biblical. That is not what Jesus wants us to do as women. So we could talk about that in a whole nother episode. But just to reiterate, I was conditioned to obey and to not speak up and to, to go with the flow, to keep, to keep that status quo and to keep him happy. If he was happy, the, our relationship was good. Even if that meant me stifling my opinion, my preference, my desire for a dinner option, It did not matter. You could not force me to make a decision on my own for fear that it would displease him. So it was um, May, Mother's Day weekend of 2019. We, all the kids were home and we just had a wonderful little dinner and all the kids kind of made homemade things or gave me little presents for Mother's Day. And it was, you know, his children included. And it was just really a special time. And when it came time to clean up, one of his daughters didn't clean up, help clean up fast enough. 
And he, I don't really want to explain all that. Do I have to? What? Did, That's where he grabbed her or whatever? Or? The arm and threw her outside in the dark. You don't want to tell it? I guess I can. I mean, what, it is, what, what's it your is, hesitation? It's painful. <laughs> That's all. I know. I know it's painful, but I think it paints the, the full picture. What a monster he was. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she wasn't cleaning, helping clean up fast enough. And let me just backtrack a little bit to say how precious his children are and no child deserves what he put them through for years and years. And when the, when his children were at our house, for the most part, he was on his best behavior with them. But this Mother's Day weekend is when I got to see the real him with his children. And this is the beginning of the scales falling off for me. So after dinner, we're cleaning up. One of the daughters wasn't helping to his liking. So he went and grabbed her by the arm and threw her out on our back patio in the dark, closed the door, and then a few minutes later went out to sit with her and spent about 20 minutes. And that's the most painful part for me is that I let it go on that long. But about 20 minutes berating her, he said she was a worthless human being. And I did hear that part. And he said that just as I was stepping outside to figure out what was going on. And I looked at him and said, go inside. And that was the first time I ever stood up to him. And he just sat there and I said, go inside. And the disdain he had for me was measurable. It was incredible. So I sat with her outside. She was shaking like a leaf, sobbing. I just held her and said how sorry I was. That's really all, all I could do. And my regret, of course, was not driving her home. But I, I knew that if I drove her home, I didn't know what he would do in my home with my children here. So that was a hard decision. Uh, we came inside. She went straight to her room and cried herself to sleep. Thankfully, her sisters were, were there with her. Uh, the next morning, the girls left and they never returned to our home to visit him after that. Maybe that's not entirely. I think they came on a Christmas Eve or a Christmas morning that following year. But they were only in our home twice after that happened. And both times I was home, they never saw their father again alone um, after that. And to this day, none of them have a relationship with him by their own choice. So that was a Mother's Day weekend of 2019. 
things between he and I were continually getting worse because I was learning all about the Enneagram and in doing so learning all about myself and doing a little bit of digging into my past unknowingly I think figuring out my codependent tendencies and my love addicted tendencies and what kind of caused that which was my my upbringing and I started questioning him a little bit on things starting to be a little bit more decisive which he was not used to and he blamed all of my strength that he could see on my my graduate school work and at the time I was in a doctorate program and he would mock me so many times and say aren't you getting smart in your doctorate program and you and I have had lots of little laughs about that it's funny now so just between May and September of that year you know I was really heavy in that doctoral program learning a lot but learning a lot about myself finding bits of strength here and there so I really was kind of emerging from this blinded state and lots of lots of spiritual work too so in September of 2019 September 7th exactly it's a Saturday and he was home and he was outside watering the grass and I like a good little puppy dog went outside to I took a little break from my studies and went outside just to be with him right and we were just having a conversation and he looked at me and said you know I've been looking for ways to leave you and that was just such a shock of course I just peppered him with all these questions what do you mean what where is this coming from I don't understand and he said yeah I've even been in touch with a headhunter to try to find jobs in Israel to move move as far away as I can Israel because he has a fascination and obsession with end times and I think we can go into that in a future episode but on the flip side of that it it has always been a dream of his to visit Israel and the Holy Land but that was really weird that was the first time he'd ever mentioned living there so that September 7th really rocked my world and that day is really what caused the scales to fall off my eyes and say I I just felt I could not do this without the support of my best friend I've already been divorced once and here is this guy who I'm absolutely in love with and I was probably obsessed with number two as well in in the sense of keeping us together I was trying to be the glue to make him happy to keep him from being abusive to trying to understand all all the periods of silent treatment I was just trying to keep that frog in the pot so to speak and I couldn't do it anymore I couldn't do it and then I immediately thought he's going to leave me and I'm going to have to tell Tony. And what am I going to tell her? 
oh, by the way, you know, this guy I've been married to for seven years while we're getting a divorce. <laughs> I'm sure you would say, what? <laughs> Why? You know, so his statement to me, I've been looking for ways to leave you just cut me at the knees. It just, I knew we were having problems, but I thought I was doing so good. And I just want to say that, that I thought I was doing so good that I knew nothing else to do. I had given up church for him. I had given up a relationship with my best friend for him. I had given up a sense of closeness with my children. I, we were still close, but it wasn't the same. I was on eggshells with them and they, they sensed that, you know, because if they were out of line and he was home, I would hear about it later. And so I was just constantly on eggshells and then having to fill this void for his daughters that he created. It was an imaginary void based on the stories he would tell about their lives outside of being with us. So I was wearing all of these hats and trying to do and be all of these people. So I just knew after um, September 7th that I needed to tell you what was going on. And that's such a drastic overstatement that he made. I mean, you come out to just hang out in nature with your husband in the backyard. And oh, by the way, I'm leaving you and moving across the world because yep. you suck. I mean, yeah. that's the message you get. It's such, a, it's such a drastic thing to tell somebody out of the wild blue yonder. Out of the blue, out of the blue. I was reading over my text messages with him prior, prior to recording today, going all the way back then. And our text communications that week were fine. And we mm -hmm. had talked every night at nine o'clock that week and they were fine there was absolutely no indication of that in his mm -hmm. other reasoning for wanting to move he said lisa i hate this house meaning the house that we live in lived in well this is the house i bought after my first divorce i bought this house because my kids went to the school the elementary school in our neighborhood and I happen to work three miles down the road. It's a perfect house for us. And he never indicated that he didn't like this house when we got married. I told him that. I said, this is the house I had when we got married. And you moved in. You never said anything about it. He said, well, I hate this house. I'm always doing something to it. And I said, you know what? You will do something wherever you live. Because he's always a fixer and always making things better. And said, so don't blame that on my house. And he said, and furthermore, when your kids start having babies, when you're a grandma, which you can't wait to be, <laughs> whatever, dude, you'll never leave our hometown because your kids will be here. And I said, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting to stay where your children and grandchildren are. I think that's wonderful. He said, you'll never be independent that way. And he moved all over the country. He and his first wife moved all over the country, even somewhere across the water. And I believe that was his way of isolating her because mm -hmm. she was very, very close to her family. Yes, that is when the scales started falling off and that 
following uh, Saturday is when I came to your house and told you what was going on. You called me and we talked on the phone. That is a blur for me. So you'll have to fill that in. (laughs) Okay. So what I remember is that you called me and we just were having a normal, what's going on? Catch up conversation with each other's lives. At some point you just started going with, is this anything kind of our joke on, is this anything like back David Letterman's stupid little skit, which I love. And I said, this is something. And I remember telling you in that phone call, this is something, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to say the A word. This looks like abuse, Lisa. And I think everything popped open in your brain from that abuse word. I just don't think you had a conception of what that was that was happening. And as soon as I said the A word, I was so scared to say it. I was so scared. I did not, I mean, you've never hung up on me. You've never gotten angry at me or, you know, and and that's my own thing. I'm always fearful. Someone's going to get mad at me. And I was, I never want to make you especially angry at me. And I was very careful, but I had to tell you, this looks like abuse. I think that was it, that point. And I had to get you to my house. I wanted you to come be away from that place, which I know is now is your sanctuary, but you needed to come be somewhere that was like an objective location. I don't know if that's a thing or not, a neutral location Mm -hmm. to you and you came and stayed for several hours. So you can start talking about that if you want what you remember. Well, honestly, I remember only the feelings. I don't remember. I know I just started unloading on you years of examples of manipulation, control, and abuse. And and it would take, it would take many, many more months for me to have the courage to to mention the physical things Mm -hmm. but I remember sitting in your recliner I remember that that feeling was very comfortable and safe I remember you sitting on your couch I remember you using the abuse word again and I had a physical reaction to that but one of like freedom like oh this is it Mm -hmm. and it was freeing but it was also very scary because I knew I knew that day I had to end it. Mm -hmm. And that's my fear was, how how do I do this? How do I do this and stay safe? The physical, his verbal abuse and physical abuse was increasing at this time. And in fact, after that Mother's Day evening, when his daughter and I came back inside, after I tried to console her outside, I walked into our bedroom and he was sitting in our bedroom in a chair. And the first thing he said to me was F you not, I can't believe I overreacted with my daughter. I'm so sorry. He never apologized to her ever. And that's the first thing he said to me. And he spent the evening, the rest of that evening, berating me and punishing me for going to her defense. So yeah, that, that day at your house, like I said, I don't really remember exactly what was said, but I remember the feeling And I think that was the first day of my new life that Mm -hmm. it was looking then it was super painful, super scary, very scary. 
but I knew what I had to do. And I made up my mind that day to do it. I didn't know how I was going to, to leave him. And I didn't really want a second divorce because that's embarrassing. Or, I, you know, to I, I felt a sense of shame because it seemed like a failure at that time on my part. Now I understand it differently, but I kind of made up my mind that day. I, I knew what needed to happen. And I think it's important to also say that day, you know, I recognize my limitations. I have a bachelor's, a BS in psychology, as I like to joke. Sometimes <laughs> it's just that BS. And I have my coaching certification, but I am not a therapist. But as a board certified coach, ethically, I must recognize when someone needs therapy. And that was something that we started talking about immediately that you needed to find a therapist that I know for you, you wanted a Christian female therapist that could recognize toxic and narcissistic qualities and, you know, help you help you see the way out. Mm -hmm. Or even at that time, I don't think that you were necessarily even saying I have to divorce him or I don't, I just don't know that I can do that right now. I don't know when I can do that. I need to, and you recognized, I need to talk to somebody and see what, what the big picture is from a trained professional therapist. You know, we found, we found some and you found a, I think a perfect person who, you know, really pointed you in the right direction. What do you think? Yes. The counselor that I, that, well, after leaving your house, I, I know you really, you know, kept pressing, really insisting, you need to find a counselor, you need to find a therapist. And I was so reluctant because of the shame. Mm -hmm. it, it was hard enough to tell you who love, you love me unconditionally. And I, I've always known that. So hard enough to tell you this. It was going to be even harder to tell a stranger. Then I was also thinking, how am I going to pay for this? Because I paid the bills while we were married, but who's to say he, and he never indicated that he was really watching transactions in our bank account at all, but who's to say he wouldn't look and, and see that. So thankfully I had kept a credit card only in my name the whole time we were married and I didn't do anything devious with it. Selfishly, it just helped, helped us earn airline points. And so I just, I kept it and he knew about it and was that it was not a thing. It was not a thing in our marriage. It, he knew about it, but never asked about it, honestly, except for, you know, how many points do we have? Uh, so I decided that I would see her and I would first ask if I could pay her in cash, which she said, no, uh, so I ended up using that credit card uh, to see her, you know, my visits with her plus processing with you really goodness, just peeled away the layers. It helped me to see me for me and helped me to see him for him and realize he is not going to change. Actually, he is going to change. He's going to keep getting worse. The stronger I got, the more abusive and controlling he became because he was losing control of me. And the more he realized I could think on my own, seek opinions of trusted experts, he was not liking that. And I did keep my therapy appointments secret from him. He never knew that I went to see anyone. He never knew 
well, I guess he did know that I talked to you because that following, he told me he was looking for ways to leave me on the 7th of September. On the 14th of September, I came to your house and he knew that I, I came to your house and he was not pleased. He was not pleased with that at all, but sucks to suck, dude. Oh, I have to tell this. Okay. So after coming to see you on the 14th and I left there knowing, maybe not consciously, but no, but semi-consciously knowing that I was going to have to end this, that this was not going to get any better. I ended up planning what we jokingly, not jokingly, endearingly referred to as honeymoon 2.0. And all of the kids were super excited about it. I had planned a weekend for us to go uh, stay downtown and do some fun activities that I knew he would like. And it was like a going to be a reset for our relationship. And I was very excited about it. And anytime we went away, anytime we went away, that meant an opportunity for us to be intimate, not sexually, but intimate, um, emotionally as a couple. In every trip we took together, with the exception of one, he sabotaged it in some way, either by planting a little, by saying a comment before we, we would leave that would make me doubt what we were about to do, make me, uh, one time we went away on a weekend and before we were even getting in the, we were loading things in the car and he goes, you know, you really pissed me off yesterday. I'm not even sure I want to go on this vacation as we're getting in the car. So what, you know, I'm just, we're, then we continue to load the car, continue to go on the little weekend trip. And the whole time I'm thinking I made him mad yesterday. I don't even know why. And so on that particular time we were driving I just kept saying, I, I just have no recollection of what I could have done or said yesterday. Can you fill me in? And he would say, you need to sit there and think about it, figure it out. And he would never just come clean and say, I don't know. I felt like you were short with me, or I felt like you weren't listening when I was telling you this important thing. He would never tell me what it was that I did wrong. I had to sit there and figure it out. And so I would. And so the whole trip would be ruined and that trip was ruined because he would say he wasn't going to talk to me or we weren't going to go do this fun thing until I figured out what I'd done wrong. Oh, that was a nightmare trip over the 4th of July one year to go see fireworks because I love fireworks and he knew that and planned this weekend and then ruined it. So that was terrible. I feel like there was another trip that I could talk about. There was another instance of where over Thanksgiving, I was able to travel with him. It was going to be super fun. So I flew to Indianapolis to meet him over Thanksgiving break. And then we drove back to Texas together. And in the driving back, we were stopped somewhere and he had a particular sunshade that he loved and something happened to it. So he bought a replacement, but it wasn't exactly the right fit. And so he handed me a pair of scissors and said, here, just cut this to make it fit. Well, we had already been having trouble and I knew enough to where if I did something wrong, I would pay for it. 
but he was masterful at giving very elusive instructions as a way to control me. And I just, I kept asking, just please show me where you want this cut. Exactly how do you want this fit? Just show me. And he finally looked at me and said, figure it out. And I remember just shaking and shaking, just knowing I was going to do it wrong. Just knowing I was going to do it wrong. And I thought then I should just tell him no. I, I should just say no. But I was afraid that he would hurt me if I told him no. So I went for it. And I'm sure you can guess I did it completely wrong. How could you be so stupid, Lisa? You have a master's degree. I cannot believe you could not figure out how to cut this. So he made a big dramatic scene out of it. He cut it up into multiple pieces and then duct taped it back together. Exactly how I had cut it, by the way, but still made a scene about it. So then we had to travel all the way across states back to Texas together in the same vehicle. And he was silent until we crossed the state line. Once we crossed the state line, we stopped to go to the bathroom, got back in the vehicle, and he was a different person. He said, okay, we're going to make it home for Thanksgiving. Let's have a non-traditional Thanksgiving feast. What could we have? And I'm like, what is this? But I'm playing along like, okay, my, my husband's back. Like, this is, this is good. So I played along and we had a terrible Thanksgiving because who wants Jello on Thanksgiving? He, he made me make Jello on Thanksgiving. I love Jello, but you don't want that. But he was trying to think of these unconventional ways to have Thanksgiving because as a narcissist, narcissists will rebel against systems and structures and rules. And one of his telltale signs, one of the red flags with him was he didn't like birthdays because he didn't be, like to be told that you had to do something for someone's birthday. Same with Valentine's, same with Christmas, always looking for an out of the box way to celebrate those things when a simple card and a piece of cake is generally perfect for someone on their birthday. And so usually what that meant was him doing nothing for any of those important days because he didn't want to do the traditional thing. He would do nothing. And then when I would get my feelings hurt about my birthday or Valentine's Day with my husband not being recognized or celebrated, then I was selfish and in trouble again. And then here we go with the silent treatment. So it's this long cycle. So I began to adapt these crazy beliefs also that, well, maybe, maybe birthdays don't really mean anything. Maybe, maybe I am making this too much or yeah, maybe, maybe we could celebrate Christmas on the, you know, on December 30th. Why does it have to be on the 25th? And just always planting these seeds of doubt. And then he would water the seeds too until pretty soon I just had a freaking forest of doubt in my mind. Okay, so after having filled you in and having a therapist, so I continued to learn things about him and about myself and get stronger. And so I know I was changing and he was not liking that. September 2019 was a really terrible month. So in addition to 
number two, telling me that he was looking for ways to leave me. Um, I believe it was the week after that, that in the very early morning hours, uh, my son called to say that he had been in an accident. He was driving back to college and fell asleep while driving and hit the concrete barricade. Um, His car was totaled. He walked away uh, without injury, we thought, and ended up needing to take him to the emergency room as a matter of precaution. So one of the scans that they conducted in the emergency room revealed a possible brain aneurysm. And let me backtrack a little bit to say when I got the phone call early in the morning, um, number two was home and laying in bed beside me. And he was awake and heard me talking to my son on the phone, but did not offer one ounce of concern, didn't offer to come with me, didn't um, do anything. He just laid there and I hurriedly got dressed and said, I'm, I'm going to the scene of the accident. And he said, okay. He never called. So there was hours by the time I got to the car accident to getting to the hospital for these scans hours had transpired and he didn't call or text a single time. And when I finally reached out to him, he said, no worries. My daughter will take me to work. And so that was his concern is about how he was going to get to work that day. And, um, mind you, he has a car that he could drive and and park at his work location before he went to travel. So that, that was just, um, you know, another layer of keeping people at his beck and call. He would, he refused to leave his car at his place of work while he traveled throughout the week. And so that kept, you know, that certainly tied up my time on, um, Fridays and Sundays having to deliver him and pick him up. So he didn't say a word about my son in this car accident. And when I finally called him, called number two to tell him the news of this possible aneurysm, zero empathy, zero concern or care, nothing. So that was in September, um, looking for ways to leave you, my son's car accident. I went to Tony's to tell her what had been transpiring for all these years. And in light of all of that, I still planned honeymoon 2.0. I was so desperate for us to get back to a place of warmth and closeness and, you know, preparing to talk about this just now, I looked through my, my journals and Y'all, it was our whole marriage where I, I, I took notes of silent treatment episodes. And throughout the years, they just got longer and longer. We went um, months without him telling me that he loved me. 
I would say I love you and he wouldn't say anything back. Months of him not texting or calling except when it was time to come pick him up from work. Months of that. And so then I would pick him up from work, bring him home, and then we would go the weekend. You know, he would engage with his daughters, but not with me. Unless I was in the room with everyone. In private, he it was complete silence, complete avoidance, you know, zero physical affection. And that would, that would go on for months. And then a, a, a switch would flip. And he would be back to his, quote, normal self. So all of that was going on. And yet I still planned honey to, Honeymoon 2.0 out of desperation. I just wanted so badly for this marriage to work. I wanted it to be easier and not easy as in I don't want to have to do any work on the relationship. But I just was feeling like everything was so hard. So I planned this trip and the activities and the he said, she said kind of uh, is kind of a blur. But the important thing is I planned things that I thought he would like to do. And not that I don't enjoy outdoor activities, but he really loves outdoor activities. And so I planned those. I planned for us to stay at our favorite hotel and I planned everything around his liking and it went okay. He was, you know, mind you, this is a month after saying he was looking for ways to leave me. So he wasn't exactly really into me during honeymoon 2.0. I was on edge the whole time trying to make sure everything was perfect. I was just praying that we wouldn't have to wait too long at the restaurant, praying that the weather was right, praying that our kayaking trip was the weather was just perfect and all just praying 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 that everything would be right but even when everything was right there was always something wrong and so i think i mentioned before that you know he was just an expert at sabotaging trips if he didn't sabotage a trip or an an opportunity for intimacy prior to it he would sabotage it at the end. And that's exactly what happened uh, after Honeymoon 2.0. We came home. We unpacked the car and just a normal evening. And he was going to leave for work later that evening. So he's getting his work gear ready. And he looks at me and he um, says, "What asks, what do you have going on this week? And I said, well, we have the actual test with the neurologist to see if this thing in my son's brain was indeed an aneurysm or not. And it's a pretty big deal, pretty big test in terms of stress level. So he said, I can't believe you're going to that. Don't you know what an aneurysm is? And I said, yes. Do you know what an aneurysm is? And at this point, I'm beginning to fight back with him because I've just had enough of his cruelty. And he said an aneurysm is no bigger, no more of a big deal than an ingrown toenail. And I just looked at him and walked away. And I just was thinking, what a fool. And I could tell then that he, he was not upset that I was going to the appointment, but he was upset that I was going with my son. And I think all along he has been very jealous of that relationship. 
And later that night, he said, you know, you're still breastfeeding your son. You need to let him grow up and be a man and go to that appointment by himself. And the the test that, that they do, I forget what it's called. You are under anesthesia and they inject your veins with this dye. And so you can't drive afterward. <laughs> so he has to have someone drive him and you can't take Uber when you've been when you've had a medical procedure of that nature. So it was just ridiculous. I should, I feel ridiculous now, even just justifying the reason why I'm going with my son. It's just bringing back all this frustration and just number two is just, you know, so messed up in so many ways, but again, trying to just shame and berate me for being a good mother and I didn't let go. I didn't let up with that. And I, I said, you feel that way, but I am going. Period. And of course I went with my son. And the good news is it was not a brain aneurysm. But that was a very, you know, a very long, hard month or two. Honeymoon 2.0 was sabotaged. And not that it was the best trip ever, but it was decent. And he completely sabotaged it with that conversation about about my son and the possible aneurysm and how I was, in his in his words, continuing to breastfeed him <laughs> by going to this important appointment. And he eventually got so upset about it that he said, you know, forget it. I'll just walk to work. And he did. He packed his things and I sat in the garage while he packed all his gear like a dutiful wife. And he packed it all. It was mid-October. It was already cold out and he walked seven miles to work in the dark, in the cold. And, you know, this just goes to show his his frame of mind. I think he expected me to come get him, you know, to come, to come find him. I, of course I knew the route he would take and I didn't. And I will tell you that I did have to talk myself out of that because a year prior to this, or even months prior to this, I would have gotten in my car or I would have said, no, you can't do that. Don't, don't, walk to work. That's crazy talk. And, you know, I, I would have gone to find him after, after a while and driven beside him and begged him to get in the car and all of those things. But this time something held me back. And I think that something was the realization that there is something really wrong with him. And not that I'm perfect by any means, but there's something really wrong here. And he just finished berating me about babying my son, who had a pretty major health scare. And so I think it was a test for me, or a test, yes, a test to see would I come to his aid? Would I come to his rescue? And the answer is, I think, yes. 
But no matter how much I came to his rescue, no, no matter how many times I tried to make things right, it was just never enough. So if I had gone to get him on that dark, cold night in October, then what? I, I think he was always putting me in situations so that I would prove myself. And at this point in 2019, I had done, you know, six years of proving and it still wasn't enough. And I came to that realization that night. Do you want to add anything to that? No, he sucks. I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do want to stop and insert something here. While I've spent some time going over examples and events of past abuse, there was something that he did consistently throughout the entirety of our relationship, marriage. And that was we would have an event like the ones I've described where I ended up missing the mark for whatever invisible standard he set. I would frantically try to make it right and that would never work. But after a period of silent treatment, that would last anywhere from hours to weeks at a time. He would eventually come around and take me uh, physically into his space, um, face to face. He would grab me by both ears and squeeze really hard. And when he would grab me by the ears, you know, the, the palm of his hand would be covering my ear canal and he would intentionally lower his voice to a whisper volume and would say something I could see his mouth moving but I I wasn't able to hear and while you know the the pressure on my ears was painful I was also startled and a little intimidated and unable to hear so it was a very uncomfortable feeling and if I wouldn't respond in time he would squeeze harder and then speak a little louder and during those times I would just say I can't hear what you're saying and then I would try to you know pull his arms his hands away from my ears and I would just keep repeating I I want to reply to you but I I don't know what you're saying And he would let go and he would say things like, you're the best thing that ever happened to me or I'm so glad you married me. And, you know, just thinking back to this just really brings a lot of emotion up and um, tears. It's really sad. And so I want everyone to know that You know, this is choosing to divorce was not an easy decision. When I look at the examples of abuse and look back at my journals to read what I lived through, in black and white, it seems so simple that 
so simple to close the book and walk away and say he was abusive and I deserve better but what complicates things is love and I really loved him and there were good times where I really felt heard and understood and then there were the times like I've described in this episode followed up with the the ear squeezing I don't know what to call it and so that those instances of pulling me to his face grabbing me by, by the ears so that's painful but what he's saying is what I long to hear which is thank you for choosing me thank you for marrying me you're the best thing that ever happened you're the perfect wife I long to hear that in the depths of my soul so because I was hearing that then some part of me was able to ignore the pain the physical pain and just always strive to be back in his good graces and that's the addiction that I had to learn to go cold turkey (laughs) go cold turkey from and that that was definitely not has not been easy so those are some you know examples of just the physical aggression and how it kind of escalated over the years And I just want to say here, you know, so many listeners, you know, may say, why, you know, why did you stay or, you know, things along that line. And so this intermittent reinforcement of that very example of the song incident, that was within a matter of 30 minutes, such a roller coaster of behavior on his part and emotions that I felt. So the night before, it was F.U., it was very contentious on his part. I stayed calm and just really wanted to understand why he purchased the song. Then in the morning, nothing is said. And so I'm anxious about that, thinking, are we going to talk about this again? Are we, how are we going to resolve this? Then it's come visit me the first time with, with a treat. And it's, you know, sweet and attentive and including me and what he's doing in the other room. And then moments later, it's threatening me, pulling me, you know, to his face, pushing me back in the chair. And then again, moments later, coming back, it's a sweet kiss. I think, you know, you asked if I wanted to add anything to that. You processed that with me. And I know you processed that with your therapist. And we were both able to really confirm what you already knew as that is physical abuse. It didn't leave a mark, but it was threatening. It was in your personal space. It was turned on and off and it walks like a duck. Mm -hmm. And it's that roller coaster of emotion that, you know, you're going back and forth between adrenaline, cortisol, all these hormones are rushing through your body. And it's that intermittent reinforcement that creates that trauma bond Mm. and it is a chemical bond like a drug it's it's like a drug and when we seek safety for ourselves by withdrawing from these people 
whether, you know, permanently as in divorce or creating space within families or workplaces or friendships, you will go through withdrawals. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a future episode, but there's a withdrawal process and that's why we stay is because mm -hmm. we're addicted. I was addicted to that middle person, that middle person that came in with the soft kiss and the, I love you and, and the little bites of food, the thoughtfulness I was addicted to that. And then also addicted to trying to get that back. So yeah, it's all chemicals. <laughs> right. As strong as any drug. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Research shows that as well. Absolutely. Research of the brain compares the oxytocin and the cortisol that our, that our bodies emit or whatever, uh, compares that to the brains of cocaine addicts in mm. the same areas of the brain light up. So, yeah. So people that maybe haven't fortunately been in abusive situations, it's really easy for them to say, why is she staying? Why didn't she leave the first thing? You know, I think hopefully we've demonstrated from our past episodes leading up to this conversation that you were conditioned at a very young age. Maybe those people that are able to say, why, why, why would you sweet Lisa stay? Fortunately for them, maybe they haven't been conditioned and they haven't gone through what you've gone through your 40 plus years to, you know, get to a point where you choose these people, these people choose you. And I think your case and why we want to, you know, put this information out there about your situation really demonstrates the years and years and years of hardwiring and conditioning that allowed you to, to be in this marriage for so long and the difficulty and the stress and the strategizing to get out of it was a almost physical, you know, but for sure, very strong psychological effort on your part. It took a lot and it can be metaphorically rewiring a computer, reprogramming, recoding a computer. I mean, it is, it's that complex and you did it and you are doing it. And it, you know, there are still those very strong laid down neural pathways that you have that, you know, come up for you. You remember things and you were learning really wonderful techniques to, you know, you can't necessarily lay foundation over those neural pathways, but you were learning techniques to maybe go around those pathways to continue building your mental health. Yeah. I think, I think those neural pathways and memories are always with us and mm -hmm. we need to use them to our benefit rather than falling prey to them allowing them to keep us stuck. Mm -hmm. So they're still there. And so when the memories crop up, I acknowledge them, but then I, I'm building new pathways yes. yeah, to, to the future that, that God has designed for me and to the future that I want. Yeah. Yeah. So the next episode, we're going to talk about your way out of this relationship, you're going to 
talk about how difficult it was because there is a love addiction here. And it took a very conscious strategizing effort on your part, planning with, you know, especially that therapist and eventually a divorce attorney to plan, strategize what to say to him and what that looked like. So the next episode, we're going to go into detail about that. And I think it's hopefully going to be a nice example for other people that are in a situation similar to yours, that it is possible and there's beautiful sunlight on the other side of it and lots of hope. So thank you so much for today, Lisa. And I know this is not easy for you, but I love your heart and I love that you're willing to share. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? It is hard. Yes. It's hard to, to go back and, and kind of recall those examples, but the more I do it, the less I feel about it. So it becomes more of just a retelling versus a reliving. Mm. And so I'm actually glad I was able to share some examples with everyone today because the more I share it, the less I feel about it. And the more it's just, it's just something that happened in my life, not to be dismissive about it, but I'm able to separate the emotion from it, but it is still raw mm -hmm. and, uh, and painful. Mostly I, I feel really sorry for the me that was me two years ago and also celebrating that I'm not there anymore. So yeah, it's bittersweet. It is fun to celebrate with you. And it is fun to watch you experience kind of anew these aha moments of I'm free. And the thing is, when we're stuck in relationships with these people, we're in a self-imposed prison in our brain. And once you realize, oh my goodness, all along I was free. It's a beautiful moment. And it's been fun watching you in your new freedom. Yes. Like, thank you. like, like you're born anew. Mm -hmm. I feel like well, a new person. <laughs> well, you are. And mm -hmm. I mean, the Lisa, I, we were talking about this the other day, the Lisa you were two years ago does not resemble in any way, shape or form the Lisa that you are today. And it's just been a joy being on this journey with you being on the other side of it. Now seeing this person, that guy, not that it matters, would you said this the other day, that guy would not recognize you today. That guy would not like you today. Mm -hmm. He would not be attracted to you in any way because you were strong and fierce and live a life of hope and positivity and optimism. Mm -hmm. And that is not attractive to him. And no. I would think it would feel pretty good knowing that. Yes. And it feels so good knowing that. And it feels so good knowing that I am not attracted to him. Isn't that great? <laughs> finally to that point where, yes, he is so unattractive, so repelling mm. to me. And that has nothing to do with forgiveness. So we'll talk about that a whole nother time. But so unattractive to me, mm -hmm. just repulsive. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for today. And we will pick up next week on your exit strategy and what this past two years has looked like. So we look forward to next week. We hope everybody will be back to join us on another episode of Here's, Here's Your Red, Red Flag. Flag. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. I flew up to the mirror. Here's Your Red Flag was written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa and edited by Tony. 
Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Thanks, y'all. You are